Hear the word of the Lord from Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Hallelujah. There is a uh, fairly well-known, I'll say secular proverb. I believe its origin is from Chaucer, but I could be wrong. Um, But it reads like this, and you may have heard it. Familiarity breeds contempt. Meaning, at least my understanding of it, is that close knowledge or common knowledge of someone or something could lead to a loss of respect for that person or that thing. We get annoying to one another every now and then, right? That's, but just for fun, I thought it would be fun to throw out some pop culture references because I'm a nerd and I like to do this. Just to see whether or not they are pleasantly familiar to you, right? And this is really just to kind of wake us up and get our brains going in this case, right? So here are – I have four. Here they are. First one, see if this one is familiar and maybe pleasantly familiar. A long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. I can't help myself, right? I'm a bit of a nerd. Here's another one that I really can't help myself with. How about this one? In a hole in the ground, there lived a hobbit. I'm wearing a hobbit door tie tag today, so if, you know, I'm a bit of a Tolkien dork too. So how about this one? This one is definitely familiar to both through literature and through film. Mr. and Mrs. Dursley of number four, Privet Drive, were proud to say that they were perfectly normal. Thank you very much. They were the last people you'd expect to be involved in anything strange or mysterious because they just didn't hold with such nonsense. This is from Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. And then the final one, which I also cannot help myself doing, is this. Space, the final frontier. These are the voyages of the starship Enterprise. Right? I just made a Star Wars and a Star Trek reference in an illustration. Nerds the world over are going insane, right? <laughs> uh, but I like them both for many reasons. But as believers, the point behind this, though, is to stress that sometimes familiarity is good. And so as Christians, familiarity is not only good, possibly to Chaucer's annoyance, but it's also encouraged. Because familiarity allows us to rest in the enjoyment and the goodness of our God. But it also allows us to rest in the enjoyment and the goodness of his word, as well as of life within the body of believers in the church. So other than the Lord's Prayer, Psalm 23 may very well be the most well-known passage of Scripture, especially within Western culture that has been Christianized. Because... 
For the most part, Psalm 23 is known as a burial psalm or even a death psalm. Now, a death psalm is not, to my knowledge, one of the more accepted labels for psalms. So I may just be making that up on my own, and that's perfectly fine. But the reason I say this is because Psalm 23 is a metaphor for death, as well as for our hope of eternal rest in God's presence. Now, metaphors are really how we try as human beings to make sense of the world, right? So Psalm 23 as a metaphor is one of the ways in which we try to make sense of the presence of God in our lives, of his care, of his guidance, and of his love as we live life and as we prepare for death. And as such, Psalm 23 is quite often part of the regular liturgy, whether or not this is what they call it, the regular liturgy of most Christian funerals and Christian funeral homes. But this theme of death is also easily relatable to our Lenten themes, especially the themes of repentance and contemplating Scripture and contemplating our mortality, and even our preparation to journey with Christ through the wilderness and to the cross. Because these themes and this theme of death constantly draws our attention to the goodness of the gospel of the Lord Jesus. And so as we begin here, just as like we've done the last couple of weeks looking at the Psalms, I just want to make a few interesting points that are good for our meditation as we think about this Psalm today. And I have three. The first one, and then we'll look at some details. The first one is repetition, right? Again, we've talked about this the last two weeks. Unlike Psalms 121 and 95, David, who this Psalm is attributed to, not our beloved David Burke, right? But David, the king, right? <laughs> uh, David does not make use of repeated words and phrases. We actually do have the word leads in the ESV, but the second leads makes more sense as guides, really. And we'll talk about that as we go through. But rather, in this psalm, what David is doing is he's presenting us rather with a theme of action, specifically an action of God towards his people. Everything in this psalm reminds us that everything in our lives is done by Yahweh to his people. And so as we read here through this whole psalm, we see again that Yahweh, he makes us, he leads us, he restores us, he guides us, he comforts us, prepares us, he anoints us for our good and for our comfort within his presence. But then going back to this idea of Psalm 23 being a metaphor, we understand that, yes, Yahweh literally does lead us and restore us and guide us, etc. But we also know that we are not literally sheep. Right? If you think you're a sheep, then we might need to call a physician. Right? You're not a sheep, you're a human being. Rather, instead, the lesson of Psalm 23 is to teach us to trust our God. We are to trust the Savior who protects us from evil, who protects, as we read in Psalm 121, our going out and our coming in from this time forth and forevermore. We are to trust him not just throughout our lives, but also at the moment of our deaths. And then third... And then we'll look at some details. But this one is key throughout this entire psalm. Unlike Psalms 121 and 95, Psalm 23 is completely focused on the individual as opposed to the community as a whole. So throughout the psalm, we see that Yahweh is, he's my God. Tremper Longman, who has a commentary on the entire Psalter, he writes this. He says, There is always a temptation for us to speak of Yahweh only as our God. And then he says this. He says, and while Yahweh is our God, we can easily forget that 
Yahweh is also the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob and the God of Nick and the God of Scott and the God of Jim and the God of Katie. So this, this focus, what this does, this individual focus, forces us then to pay attention to our own personal expression of faithfulness to Yahweh. Even while remembering that we are part of the greater community of faith, the people that he has called to be his own. And this individual focus also invites us to personally take Psalm 23 and through its words make a joyful noise and express our personal gratitude and our personal confidence in Yahweh as my God. Because, and and this is going back to our theme, this is a gut-wrenching truth that we all really have to face. One day we all individually will taste death. We will all die. And even if we die, like my grandfather did, surrounded by loved ones and family, we all experience that moment of death individually. But with Yahweh, we do not experience and taste death alone. There is a difference. And so with these meditative points in mind, the individual focus, even the repetition of theme, as well as this idea of metaphor, let's then turn and start to consider some of the details. And so looking just at verses 1 through 3, again, David writes here, he says, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads or guides me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. So as we begin here, Notice, again, he just begins with, Yahweh is my shepherd. This is a theme that has really been building through the last couple of psalms we've looked at. Two weeks ago, in Psalm 121, we saw where Yahweh was keeping or he was guarding or defending us as his people, which is a shepherding work of protecting his flock. Last week in Psalm 95, we were urged in that psalm to not only hear the voice of our shepherd, but to listen to the voice of our shepherd. We've made note of this over the last two weeks multiple times, but Jesus tells us in John 10 that he is the good shepherd and his sheep listen to his voice when he calls them. And so Yahweh's shepherding work of us is key as we journey through both the wilderness of Lent as well as through life. But it is also key in how it aids in our identification with Christ. Because by identifying us with and in Christ in his suffering and in his death, our shepherd, what he is doing, is leading us to himself. And just as with Psalm 121 and Psalm 95, this theme of shepherding, Yahweh being our shepherd, speaks to his covenanting nature. Because again, this psalm begins with the word Yahweh. It addresses God by his covenant name. Everything that follows throughout the rest of this psalm is to be rightly understood as influenced by Yahweh, our covenant God, his nature of covenanting and calling a people to himself because he wants a people to be known by him and a people to know him. And it also reminds us that Yahweh is not only concerned with the whole, but he is also concerned with the individual. Again, Yahweh is not just a shepherd. Yahweh is my shepherd just as much as he is your shepherd. And so what this does then is this requires us to examine where we place our trust. Augustine writes this, he says, When I address Yahweh as my shepherd, 
I no longer have any proper ground left for me to trust in myself. And so that's why David continues in this first half of verse 1, or the rest of verse 1, excuse me, and he says, Yahweh is my shepherd, and I shall not want. Some of the translations that you might be looking at could read something along the lines of, I shall lack nothing, like we sang a moment ago when we sang this song. Or another way of translating this could be, I shall not be in want. Right? So Yahweh, a shepherd, is concerned about the welfare of his sheep. Because he has called and redeemed and covenanted with me in Christ, he cares about my welfare. In Yahweh, as my shepherd, I am not in want for anything. And speaking to this truth, Jesus says this in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7. He says, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you shall find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For anyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or, which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? So then if you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more then will your Father who is in heaven give good gifts to you? Yahweh is a providing shepherd. And what this beautiful and this very familiar psalm reminds us of is that he desires to provide and to give all that we ask for. But as James tells us, if we do not have, then we should ask the Lord who gives generously, but we are to ask in faith. So consider, though, just backing away from the individual for a moment, consider how what this means for us as individuals who are part of the whole community. Yahweh, who is our help from the hills, who is our creator, who is the creator of heaven and earth and our keeper and also the rock of our salvation, he is your provider and he cares for your good and he cares for your welfare in Yahweh and through Yahweh you lack absolutely nothing. And then, just in the, first, the next couple of verses, verses 2 and 3, David then turns. He, he says, basically, this first one is really an overview statement. And then verses 2 and 3, in the rest of the psalm, he starts to describe what this lack of nothing means. And so in verses 2 and 3, he begins, and he says, first, he leads me, excuse me, he makes me to lie down in green pastures. Green pastures symbolize, again, remembering the metaphor of the psalm, it symbolizes a place of abundant provision where we as sheep of God's flock do not need to wonder or to wander in order to find nourishment. Unlike in a world like our own that is governed by seasons and by weather patterns, the sheep of Yahweh's flock are led to pastures that are full of provision that is constant and abundant. We don't have to worry about frost in Yahweh's pasture. We don't have to worry about winter and feet of snow or torrential rains. God's pasture is abundant and constant. But let's not miss really the connection of how this should relate to us as the church. Because we, as a church, as the gathered body of Christ here at Christ Community Church on North Parkway, we are to be part of those green pastures for the individual believer. Which leads us to ask, are we being faithful to be pastures, green pastures, for those who are hungry for God and for Christ. Yahweh cares about the nourishment of his sheep, and he wants his churches to be part of that work. And the same could be said of still waters. Again, he makes me to lie down in green pastures, but he also leads me beside still waters. 
In Hebrew, this, this really adds a lot of weight to this. this. In Hebrew, this could be translated as waters of rest. Yahweh, my shepherd, leads me into his presence, which are the waters of rest in his presence. Jesus tells the woman at the well, and we read this in Sunday school, in John 4, he says, everyone who drinks of the water that he will give, that person will never be thirsty again. In Revelation 22, Jesus says to John the Apostle, he proclaims, let the one who is thirsty come. And let the one who desires to take the water of life without price come. These still waters, these waters of rest are where the sheep can drink without fear. Without fear of ambush from predators. They're not hurried, right? They're not led to these waters and then kind of forced along, get your drink and let's keep going. And these waters, there is no lack of fresh and life-giving water. Because in Christ Jesus, there is plenty of water from Yahweh. In Christ, I can drink to my heart's desire of the restful waters of Yahweh's presence. Which, as he tells the woman at the well, becomes a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And then David notes here, continuing on in verse 3, he says, Yahweh restores my soul. Again, the Hebrew is really helpful here. This word in Hebrew could also, this word for restore could be translated as Yahweh turns back my soul or returns my soul. Which speaks to the work of repentance. This, This means that repentance is a work of the shepherd towards me. Repentance, if you remember, means to turn away from sin and to turn to God. As Yahweh restores my soul to himself, it is a work of his kindness as a loving and a protective shepherd that leads me to repentance. Yahweh restores me so that I can not only rest in his presence, but also so that I can know that life within his presence is good and it is worth living. By restoring me to himself, Yahweh gives my life enjoyment because my life is lived Within his presence. And by turning back my soul and by turning back your soul, Yahweh is leading me, he's leading you onto paths of righteousness directly to his presence. Unlike the crooked paths of the wicked, Yahweh's paths are straight because Yahweh does not unnecessarily exhaust or weary his sheep. He desires for us to reach our destination to him. Not to get lost along the way. So think of how this is meant to encourage us individually as we journey through Lent and as we journey through life. Yahweh is a shepherd who who is always with his sheep. His presence and his guidance are intertwined. We cannot separate them. Being led on the paths of righteousness means that God, as our shepherd, is constantly leading us to life within Christ who is the righteousness of God. His way is never the wrong way. Meaning that Jesus, as our good shepherd, is constantly leading us as his sheep to himself so that he can bring us safely into the presence of the Father. And then David just finishes verses three, verse 3 here, and he says that all of this is done for his name's sake, which is the name of Yahweh, our covenant God who has revealed himself 
by his name to the people that he has chosen and restored and guided to himself. But then notice, you come to the second half of the psalm, and David actually turns and addresses Yahweh directly in this psalm. In verse 4, what he is doing, he's, he's speaking then directly to the reality of Psalm 23 actually being considered a burial or a death psalm. And he says this, Even though I will walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Even though I walk through the valley with death overshadowing me, I have no fear of evil because my shepherd's presence is with me. He is always with me, even during the darkest attacks of the enemy, but also in my final moments before I draw my last breath. God is with us. And so notice how this speaks to the loving work of Christ as a good shepherd. A shepherd, by definition, leads. He doesn't prod unless he has to. He leads He guides. Jesus, as a good shepherd, has already led the way for us. And he has led the way for us through the valley of death. Those who trust in Christ have no need to fear either enemies or death because Christ has already crossed the threshold of death for us. And he has come back for us. Not only to show us the way through, but to promise us a bodily resurrection in himself. Don't let anyone ever try to convince you that Psalm 23 does not contain the gospel. Otherwise, they have not read verse 4. Right? Hebrews tells us in chapter 2, verse 17, that Christ had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God and so that he might make propitiation for the sins of people. Christ has led the way into death and led the way into resurrection because he is a good shepherd and he is a loving shepherd. And we have no fear of either, evil or death. And his care for us as a shepherd is symbolized here in this verse by his rod and his staff. A lot of times these are pictured as the same thing, right? You see the crook of the shepherd's staff and then you assume maybe the rod is, you know, the pointy end right on the bottom. But really, I think you can also see these symbolized sometimes as two tools. And these are two very important tools in the arsenal of a shepherd, right? So a rod, if you were to just Google a shepherd's rod and staff, you see photos of this. It's really kind of interesting, or even drawings. A rod is a club at the end of the day. It's like a bat. And it has one job. And it's to bludgeon wild predators to death, right? I have a, a wolf or a dog or a hyena or a bear coming after my sheep, I'm going to beat that thing in the head with my club until it leaves. <laughs> That's its point, right? It's to bludgeon wild predators to see, uh, that are seeking to steal a sheep from the flock. Whereas the staff was to keep the sheep in control and to keep them in line, to keep them on the paths of righteousness or to rescue them out of, off a cliff or a crevasse. And both tools... Speak to God's, to Yahweh's constant vigilance over his own, as well as his comforting presence to protect and to provide for us, both through the valley of the shadow of death and through the onslaught of evil from the enemy. And each of these tools, his rod, his staff, and our fearing no evil, all of these speak to our lack of want and our lack of need within the presence of Yahweh. We have no need to fear. He is 
he is armed with a, with a staff and with a, with a club to bludgeon the enemy. But then notice in verse 5. Verse 5 is really neat. Not that this whole psalm isn't, but, but verse 5, I, I got those, one of those moments where I just got really excited. Um, because verse 5, we come to verse 5, and we see that Yahweh's care and his protection, which we have been hitting on through these first four verses, it now gets to a point where David reminds us that his care and his protection also include abundance. So again, verse 5 reads this. He says, You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, and my cup overflows. Notice the elements that David draws out here. Particularly the elements of table and oil and cup, especially as they relate to Christ himself. As a table, Yahweh is hosting a mighty banquet. And he has laden the table with food and with drink. And he has prepared a feast for each of us as his beloved children. Even with the enemies of the world surrounding us. And we realize in Christ that this abundant table is the Eucharistic table. Yahweh has prepared for us a table as we are surrounded by our enemies. And this includes, not just through life, but it includes contemplating our deaths. Because Yahweh's table is the table to which we, as a covenant community here at Christ Community Church, we come to the table together every single week. And this is a table that has been set before us, not only as a reminder of the death and the sacrifice of Christ, but a reminder of our own deaths. Because we are reminded by Christ himself that by eating his flesh and drinking his blood, we are reminded that even in our physical deaths, we have life. He tells them in John 6, he says, I say to you, truly I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. And whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I abide in him. This is the table for the Eucharist. Origen writes here and he tells us, he says, however many times that you may be afflicted, however many times that you may be assailed by the enemy, he says, just as equally, just as many times as you have been afflicted, the table has been placed before you. So fix your eyes firmly and attentively upon the table of Christ. He has prepared for us a feast in the presence of our enemies. But then he also has this element of oil that he reminds us of here too. Oil throughout the Old Testament was used specifically for a lot of things, but particularly for the anointing of the head as an ordination rite for kings and for priests. Under the new covenant, we understand that Christ is our priest king. And we as his bride and his body are a nation of priests that have been anointed to rule with our king. Through that same king, we also inherit his kingdom. And then the cup, we see there's so much oil that's being anointed that our cup overflows. It not only overflows, I've always in my head as a kid, I always imagined you've poured so much on me that the thing underneath me is overflowing. And that's not really, I think, what, that's just the imagery of a child, at least in my own weird kid mind, right? But in this case, it's he's pouring out wine, right, in my, in my cup so much that it's 
It's overflowing. And this overflowing cup, right, this speaks again to Yahweh's abundant, overflowing provision for each of us in Christ the Lord. Because in Christ, Yahweh provides. Again, Jesus says, ask and it will be given. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened. If you ask, you receive. The one who seeks finds. The one who knocks, it is opened. God wants to provide abundant blessings and provision to his sheep. And so we come here at the end of verse six, or to verse 6, and he says, Because of Yahweh's care and provision, we can be assured then that Yahweh keeps his covenant promises. Because as we read, he says, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Again, just to kind of retranslate words, because I think it really adds weight to what's being said here. The word surely could be translated as only. Some of your translations may even read that way. More often than not, it doesn't because we, I, I grew up memorizing the KJV, and it, I think it was even surely, right? But it could be translated as only, whereas goodness and mercy refer to Yahweh's hesed. It refers to his covenant love, his loyal love. So we could read this as follows. We could read it as only Yahweh's covenant love and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. But follow me could be translated differently as well. Because in Hebrew, it suggests this idea of pursuit, like chasing after. So, only Yahweh's covenant love and mercy will pursue me for my entire life. Yahweh's covenant, loyal love, believer, he has pursued you in his love. Non-Christian, whether you're in the room or listening, God is pursuing you in the person of Christ Jesus. He is pursuing you in the cross of Christ, and he has pursued us as his own in the cross of Christ, in the resurrection of Christ, in the outpouring of his spirit upon all flesh. He is pursuing us in his bride and his body of the church. Yahweh, in his loyal, steadfast covenant love, pursues those who are his. He pursues us like a friend, like a lover, Song of Songs tells us, like a father who misses his child, which is the whole point of the parable of the prodigal son. And and Yahweh, he places us in this pursuit of his loyal love upon paths of righteousness that lead us to our destination of his presence, of his dwelling, as we read here in verse 6, where we read that because of his pursuing loyal covenant love, we will dwell in his presence from this time forth and forevermore. And so as, as, as you think through this psalm, and this is a very familiar psalm. Most of us have it memorized. When I was reading it earlier, I was looking around and some people were just mouthing along, right? Because you don't have to look at the bulletin. You know this psalm, right? If you grew up in a Christian circle at all, you, were, you, you had to memorize the psalm, right? But as you meditate on it this week and you think about some of these things and think about it differently, remember Psalm 23, as with all of the psalms, is, is part of the wisdom literature of Scripture. And so as such... It teaches us the wisdom of living our lives and approaching our deaths within the presence of Yahweh. But notice that if you were to pull out a calendar, and I did this, and it might be off by a day or two, give or take. 
Interestingly, our lectionary has it this way this year, but Psalm 23 comes at the perfect time during this fast of Lent because it falls right in the middle of the season. At the very moment, because by the time you reach about that halfway point, you're getting frustrated, right? If you're fasting from something, especially if you're fasting from some type of food or drink item, you're, you're, you're craving at this point, right? We're getting to that point where you might be tempted to give up or you might be tired or you might just be frustrated. And this psalm, in its, in its beautiful familiarity and in its beautiful simplicity, it reminds us of the loving care of our Lord and our Savior. It reminds us of the work that he has accomplished for us through Christ. And it reminds us of how his guiding presence is always with us, drawing us closer to himself, drawing us into a relationship with him. He's aiding us. He's feeding us. He's filling us to the full with living water, but also just allowing us to just rest in his presence. This is a psalm that might remind us of our mortality. It may remind us of our impending death, but it is also a psalm that calls us to rejoice in a loud noise in our help from the hills, who is our creator and our protector and our redeemer. So now as we come to the abundant table prepared for us in the presence of our enemies, rest in Christ. Rest in his guiding and loving presence. Rest in the presence of God who loves you, who has redeemed you, and who will never leave you and never abandon you. Amen.